Man, this is so weird. I left just over 10 years ago. I come in here. The Utleys have sat in the same seat for 15, 20 years. Um, I don't know many of you. Uh, in fact, I show up in my own church, and I don't know many people, so I feel at home. In this room, I have had so many conversations on these steps with people, um, seen so many baptisms and so many things. Uh, when I got here to Cornerstone, actually, this building didn't exist. Uh, we met over in whatever you call that other room. Uh, what is it? NPR, multi-purpose room. Um, <laughs> we get creative in Cornerstone. So, uh, but man, it's just so odd to be back. We have built so many relationships when we were here. I was here from 1999 to 2008. And um, this church, I feel like, honestly, I feel like I grew up in this church. Um, I kind of did, yeah. <laughs> um, I, there's so many relationships. And uh, we have had, I've been here since Wednesday, actually, and we're trying to squeeze in as many people as we can. I got bags under my eyes to show that we've been staying up late and talking with people. And it's just so good to be back. And, but yet it's weird. <laughs> Um, I even got married while I was on staff here. Uh, my wife and I have three daughters. Uh, Karis is 13. Hope will be 11 next month. And Salem is six and a half. That's critical. Um, they'll be here actually by the end of this gathering, and you'll probably see them. But um, so much happened here, and I learned so much. My wife and I, uh, we got married about a year after I was on staff here, so in 2000. And we come from very different backgrounds. Um, me, uh, very uneducated family. Uh, some people call blue f- blue collar family. I would just say dark blue collar family. Um, my wife, upper middle class, um, Yugoslavian German conservative Christian home and family. And in my our wedding was fascinating. <laughs> actually, some of you were actually at our wedding. I think Ruby and John, you were probably there, right? Um, our wedding was fascinating. You, you looked out, and in my family, on the left side at our banquet table, you know, we see my family. You see some jeans and some flannel shirts, Harley Davidson stuff, quite a few mullets, you know. <laughs> on my side and then you come over to my wife's side and you just you see women dressed up really nice and dresses and men wearing suits and you see things like teeth you know and you <laughs> you 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 see this total difference you know and it's like this represents our family and um and but yet at the same time like you come together despite all those differences everybody there that day was there to celebrate the union between my wife and I. And um, in, in similar ways, you know, I'm one of, of quite a few church planters, actually, that come, was on staff here and then left to plant a church. And all of us are different. We have different backgrounds. We have uh, different personalities. Our churches look actually quite different. And yet we're committed to the same Christ. And we're, we're committed to multiplying his church. And so to be back here is um, just honestly just short of tears for me. Uh, my wife's going to cry today for sure. Um, she will, yeah, if you say hi to her, she's going to just start crying. But, um, 
But I actually come back once, about once a quarter, and I meet with Todd and one of the other church plants that came out of here from Scott Mel. He was served with me in the college ministry, student ministries, and he plants a church called Cornerstone LA now. And we meet about quarterly to talk about how do we continue helping each other plant more churches and encourage people planting. It's important. And it's, and it's vital. And so for me, in my story, it was in November 2007. And uh, when I, all of a sudden, the fall of 2007, I felt like I was done here. And it was the weirdest feeling because I, there was no like, reason to leave. Uh, the leadership here was phenomenal. I grew so much. But I felt like at the time, I was 33 and living at home. And nobody wants to do that. Well, most people don't want to do that. I, I didn't want to do that. I felt like I was 33 years old and still living at home, and so I needed to go. But the question was, is like, where and what do I do? And, and for whatever reasons, Portland was the only place on my mind, Portland, Oregon. And so when we, when we got to this place of going, okay, Portland, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, why Portland, Oregon? I, I knew nobody there. I had flown through one time to speak at a conference, and it wasn't even a good conference. Like, I, I had a horrible experience, actually. Um, I, there's no reason why I would go to Portland, but I couldn't get it off my mind. And so in November of 2007, I decided to go up there for a week, and I brought my family. And at the time, Karis was almost three, and Hope was almost about three months old. And we went up there just to like at least check it off the list. You know what I mean? Because there's nothing else in my head that where I was supposed to go or do or what. And so we just went up there to kind of check it off the list. And, and I remember thinking like, how do I figure out whether or not I'm supposed to go? How can I figure this out? The elders here affirmed me going and planting a church. And so that was affirming, but where and how, and how do you figure that out? Like, so I'm going up to Portland, Oregon, but what questions should I be asking? What should I be looking for? Like a cloud in the sky that says, Chuck, move, you know, here, or like a bumper sticker on a drive-by van. Like, what are you, what are you looking for? And I remember trying to figure that out before we went. And I, and I, when I got there, um, I started to go through like all these usual ways that people discern God's voice in their life. And it, there's a number of ways that you can process through that. In fact, you guys are in the book of Jonah. And one of the ways that we can process through our, circ- our, our situation and God's voice in our life is just by circumstances. In, in the book of Jonah, Todd asked me to teach on chapter three today, but I want to start off on chapter one. Because I think if you look at, just for a second, if you can look at Jonah's circumstances, but use how we think about that, our own thought processes, I think something might click for you. Like This is how, see if you can relate to this. Let's let's go to uh, Jonah chapter 1. I'll put this on the screen for you. It says this, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now you guys have covered this already, but um, you ever wonder like, what does that look like? How did, how did it come? How did the Lord's word come? Did he, somebody tell him, hey, I got a word from the Lord for you? Uh, it wasn't in the Bible. Like he, was, he didn't have it in a text. Did he hear an audible voice? Did he just pray and it was just clear? Did he feel like, how did that happen? Well, I don't know. But he knew what God was telling him to do. And it says this, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, which was very frightening for their evil has come up before me. So what we know from the book of Jonah already is that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And there's plenty of reasons not to. You wouldn't want to go either. 
He was hurt by them. It was an evil empire ruled by oppression and fear and brutality and all of those kinds of things. So he doesn't want to go there. So now let's just look at his circumstances. He doesn't want to do what God tells him to do. But let's use our thought processes a little bit to like see how, the, how we might like rationalize this. So he's like, yeah, God's telling me to do this, go to Nineveh. I don't want to do that. I'm going to head in this direction and trust that if God doesn't want me to do that, he'll stop me. You ever have that thought? Well, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Tarshish sounds good. He goes down from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which is a, a, a shipyard, basically. I've actually been there. Uh, it's great. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. No way. I mean, the circumstances. I mean, they're lining up. This must be God's will. So he paid the fare. He, he, he didn't have to fundraise for this mission trip. Like all the money was there. He even had the money. God supplied the money there. And so, I mean, if God wants me to head in this direction, he doesn't want me to head in this direction, he'll stop it. Uh, okay. So he pays the fare and he went down in, into it to go with them to Tarshish, but it was away from the presence of the Lord. So some of the ways in which I was processing my call to, to Portland was I was like, okay, should I be looking at all the circumstances and how it all lines up? Because none of that lined up for me. None of it did. I'll share a little bit about that in a few minutes, but, but what, what another way of going about this is actually you, you try to process through the pros and cons of a situation. So you ever do this, like you have decision A, and then you have decision B. And then you list out the pros of A and the pros of B. You with me? Whether you do this on a list or over cups of coffee or whatever, and then you list out the cons. And somehow we get to this place where Whichever situation has the most pros for me, well, that must be God's will. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? Now, now here's the thing. Like, when I, when I go through that, um, and, and I think through, like, the situations, and I'm going up to Portland, I'm realizing, like, you can't look to Jesus to find either of those as a, a means of figuring out God's voice in your life. He certainly didn't have to go, ah, oh, whatever benefits me, like, that must be the Father's will. Well, of course not. The, the cross would be a great example. You don't see that in the apostles' life. You don't, you don't see everything lining up perfectly for all of these people. And so my question was, is like, how do I process through this? Well, thankfully, I was a part of really good leadership here. And I learned alongside and underneath some leaders that understood that Jesus never asked us to invite him into our lives and our ways. He's invited us into his life and his ways, and they're often very opposite from the way we operate. And so by God's grace and being under and a part of leadership here, I, was, I went about asking whether or not Portland was the place a little bit differently. Rather than asking God when I was there, what, is the, do you want me here? Do you want me here? Do you want me here? It was, God, there's no other place in my mind, so why would I not come here? So I flipped the question. And I, I wish I could take credit for it. I, it's really just God's enabling me. I, I just, I'm so thankful that I did that, though. I flipped it. It's like, why would I not come here? Well, the truth is I came up with a bunch of answers. 
A bunch of answers. I had, was at a great church of great ministry. I had financial, at least stability for my family. I had people that loved me and that I loved deeply. I had fears and insecurities and, and biases and, um, I had, uh, no, no money in my savings account. I had three daughters or two daughters, sorry, at the time and no job. No way to make money. I can think of all kinds of reasons not to go. And so when I'm there thinking through all of that, my wife and I were talking, and when I flipped the question, why would I not come here, and you start to find all these answers like fears and insecurities and all these kinds of unanswered questions, we had to deem those as invalid. Those were invalid reasons to not go. Because when you're looking at like following God, you, you come to this place where you just realize, you know what, I don't have no good faith reasons to not follow. They're all self-centered and self-absorbed. They're out of a desire to feel like uh, feeling out of control, as if I you think you're in control anyway. You know what I mean? Like I want to have control, so these unanswered questions have to dot every I and cross every T before I do anything. The circumstances have to be perfectly in line so that I can feel in control. Like all of those things are invalid reasons. And so when I when I when we process this, my wife and I, we just uh, ten years ago, it was in April two April eleventh two thousand and eight to be exact. We got in our cars and drove up to Portland. I knew nobody in the city. My wife had two old college friends somewhere in the city. And we just went one day at a time. And I got in my car every morning at like 8 a.m. And I was, came back at 5 p.m. Um, hoping to find a, a check in the mailbox. <laughs> um, I, I had a goal of trying to talk to 10 people a day, and I failed every single day. I didn't make it once. I started to hold the door at the coffee shop for people just so they would say thank you, and I could say you're welcome. I'll be like, that's one, you know. <laughs> And I would just count, I was just like, this, my introverted self, I just want to curl up and suck my thumb in the fetal position, you know? And I just, we just went and we had this little house church and we just started going one day at a time. Now our church looks very different than the little house church did at the time. I think Todd mentioned it. We have three congregations now. Portland's uh, separated by a river that goes north and south, Willamette. And uh, on the west side of Portland, we have three congregations there. We're actually launching our fourth here just right after Labor Day. So it looks very different, but it's still a call of faith. And, and I think that this is important because we have, we have seen the beauty, or at least glimpses of the beauty, of setting aside our fears and our biases to just simply do what God wants us to do. We have been changed. We have been transformed. And we have watched God transform others through our obedience. And that's something I hope for you. And it's something that I think the book of Jonah can speak to. Now, when you come to Jonah chapter 3, it brings us to this point where, um, if, you're, if you have a Bible, turn there. Um, Jonah chapter 3, it's, it's on page 954. If you look um, Jonah chapter 3. We get there, and he, Jonah has just been spit out of the mouth of this whale. And he's on dry land. And I already shared with you the first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But now is the second time. And what I, what I want to show you is, is that now he has another choice. He has allowed his fears and biases and insecurities 
to overpower his obedience and just trusting in God once. And now he has another opportunity to not allow his fears and insecurities to overpower trust. And so we'll watch what happens here. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Then the word, I'll read it with you uh, from the screen, or from your, I'll just read it from the screen. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. We already talked about the first time. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So here's the deal, Jonah. All I'm doing, all I'm asking is that you go and just say what I want you to say. That's it. Now, fears, insecurities, unanswered questions, there's a lot of those. But now he has a, 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 another chance to like just trust. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Very different storyline now. It's not Tarshish. He's not running from the presence of the Lord. He says, okay, I've learned. Now, he's been swallowed by a whale. So that probably helped the trust issue. But all of those fears are still there. All those things about Nineveh that he didn't want to go to are still there. He still has to make a decision to trust or not. And so he goes to the Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, so very large at the time. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, so about a third way into the city or so, towards the core of it, and he called out. Here's the message. It's eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's all God asked him to say. Very simple. Doesn't call to, there's nothing. There's just eight words. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Believed who? <laughs> like what in the world? See, here, here's one of the things that I've, I've learned to uh, trust in is that when you actually just do what God asks you to do, and, and in Scripture, it's pretty plain sometimes. People don't point to you. They actually point to God. Matthew 5 talks about let, let your light shine before men and let them see your deeds, like what you're doing. When we actually just live the way God wants us to live, it points people to God. That, we see that here. And here's their response. You see a response. When, when Jonah is able to set his fears and insecurities and all those kind of things aside, he just does what God wants him to do. You start to see transformation. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's uh, keep reading. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is a very uh, familiar thing if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. People would cover themselves in these things as, as different signs. You see uh, Jacob doing this uh, when he finds out Joseph dies in Genesis 39, I believe. Uh, you see uh, David doing this a number of times, King David. And probably most notably when he sleeps with a married woman called Bathsheba, and gets her pregnant, and then to cover up his tracks, he has her husband murdered. In the repentance side, regret, repentance, he covers himself in this. It's a, it's a sign of acknowledging God's there. It's a, it's a humility. It's a, it's a posture towards God. You actually see Daniel doing this in Daniel 9 when he's petitioning for the people. It's just a, a humility. 
And so you see this as the response from Nineveh, an empire ruled by power and fear and oppression and all those kinds of things. And so this is the response of, of, of Jonah's obedience. And he issued a proclamation. This is the, the, um, the king and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. So he sends this message out across the empire. And he says this, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out to mightily, out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, you see one guy setting aside his fears and biases and insecurities, just simply doing what God asked him to do. And then you see God work. Jonah didn't manipulate it. He didn't strategize it. He was just obedient. That's it. It's very simple. And then the, the king calls for a fast. Fasting, if, if you're not in the practice of fasting, um, you, you should be. Fasting is a, is a practice of dependence. That's what it is. It's a reminder that you're dependent on God, not your own self. This is why you actually Sabbath and you stop working. It's the same thing. It's, it's a practice. And it's, it does a lot of things. It's good for health, fasting is. But it's a sign of dependence and acknowledgement of God's control, God's sovereignty over our lives. And so the king now is calling for the fast. It's actually a, a good practice of self-control. I hear a lot of people say at times like, yeah, I, I just can't fast. I can't make it through a day without food. It's like, no, you just don't want to. And you might have a medical issue. That's fine. There might be something there, but you can't expect to have self-control in other areas of your life if you're not practicing self-control over something as simple as like a type of food or a device. Yeah, you won't have control over self-control over any area of your life then. So he calls for this fast, this, this posture. It's a, it's, an, it's a humility, and God honors it. Watch this. Verse 10, this is the end of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Humility goes a long way with God. And when we look at this, I feel like we can see and recognize that there are beauties to being at this point in history when we look at the scriptures. Because we can look at this in hindsight and allow Jonah's hindsight to be your foresight. There, if you're anything like me, there's plenty of times when you actually allow your fears and insecurities and worries and anxieties to overpower trust. You, you want control more than you want dependence. In our culture, dependence is a sign of weakness. This is why we don't ask each other for help. We like to help other people because it makes us feel like we're in control. But we don't want to ask for help. So I get it. It's really hard. But we can actually allow this to be uh, our foresight. So let me just step back for just a moment. Let me, um, let me talk about this for just a moment. Uh, bigger picture. Christian tradition and Orthodox Christian understanding of who God is would say that God is a self-giving, loving relationship. You might attach it to one word called the Trinity. But God is self-giving love. That is Orthodox Christian understanding. 
He's constantly giving himself, which is perfectly expressed through Christ, his teachings, his life, certainly the cross. And we also understand that you are actually, and I am all, we all are, created as image bearers. So we're bearing the image of that self-giving, loving God, which at very least would mean this. You're going to give your love to something as well. You're going to do that. Now, the problem is, um, is that we corrupt that. And instead of giving ourselves away, which you see modeled in God, we actually corrupt it and we absorb it. We, we turn it on ourselves. And so now I become the number one benefactor as priority. My comfort, my ease, this is how I discern God's voice in my life. Now I'm at the core, and if it doesn't benefit me most, it must not be God's will. This is a way in which we corrupt it. And this is why Jesus actually tries to direct our love when he says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then watch how you love yourself. Take note of that and turn it away from yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. This is why he tries to direct our love because we're, we're made in the image of God. We're going to give our love to something. Another way of saying that is this. Jesus understands that you are a worshiper. You're going to put your hope in something and you will chase it. That's what you'll do. That's what we all do. He understands that. And so what happens is Jesus directs our love away from ourselves towards God, towards others, because you are a worshiper of something. Now, let me just give you an image briefly, and I'll, ask, I'll give you a few things to maybe consider then. Let me just, this, this image is helpful for me. In the ancient world, imagine like a, a cabinet on this side, um, one, one door on it. And if you open up the door, there's a bunch of shelves on it. But on the front of the door is just one word. It's worshiper. And if you open up the cabinet, on the shelves, you'll see things like family and work and finances and recreation. And this would be a good representative of how people in the ancient world would have thought of themselves. They're one thing. They are a worshiper. And you open up the door and everything is an act of who you are as a worshiper. On this side, though, imagine a dresser. Say four or five different drawers. And on them, the same, same labels as the shelves. You see, I have family and work and finances and recreation. And then you probably have a drawer of, like, religion. And if you open up that drawer, somewhere in the drawer, you're going to find this idea of worship. This would be more accurate to describe our current context and how we think about life. It's very disintegrated and disjointed. We have a hard time connecting Sunday to Monday in the workplace. We, we don't really understand how all of this fits. It's very disjointed. So I, I just want to encourage you, like, if you come to the scripture and the text, you actually understand that it is integrated. But when you corrupt it and you turn everything about yourself, you end up in a very disjointed life. You, you really should be over here with this cabinet idea. And so with that, I, I would just say this. I don't know what your fears and insecurities are. I don't know what questions you're needing answers for. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know how much pain you're in. I, d I don't know how confused you are with God. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know how you handle the anxiety of today's culture. 
That's the one word I would use to describe today's culture is just anxious. I don't know if that makes you more anxious, if that causes fears and anxiety in you. I don't know any of that stuff, but what I do know is fear is real. I know that. And I know insecurity runs deep. And I know that circumstances can be really, really hard. Really, really hard. But I also know that God's blessing in your life isn't defined by any of those things. You see, when, when we think about this, let me just, I know that life can be foggy at times and obedience and whether I go to this school or, or send my kids to that school or take this job or move here, all these things are kind of, can be really ambiguous. Let me just give you a few things to maybe consider from the book of Jonah and just this lesson of his obedience. The first thing is this, would you consider flipping your question? Not, not to ask God, should I, should I, should I, should I, but why would I not? Because what happens is, is when you flip it, you're going to be given with just a little bit of self-awareness. There's a lot of really clear, pretty simple, basic things to do that God commands. And he's going to command them because you don't do them naturally. That's, that's, that's how well, it's command. But would you consider flipping the question? It's just saying, God, why would I not do this? And then let them show you. And when it is things like fears and insecurities and things, those, those kinds of unanswered questions, would you deem those invalid? Would you consider that? And say, God, these are invalid. These are self-focused, self-absorbed. I'm trying to catch a ship to Tarshish right now. And yet you're calling me to go here. It's very simple. So allow me to please help me. Would you consider flipping it? Flipping the question. Why would I not serve at the school? Why would I not do this? And process it. Is at Colossae in Portland, we're, we're doing a number of things that um, I, I've become more and more comfortable in trust. And I, a lot, most of what we do, in fact, doesn't really make sense on paper. Um, we're, we're gonna plant this fourth congregation. Here's what I can tell you about that. We're sending great leaders and good people and a lot of money that we need. We're gonna be in about a $20,000 a month deficit. So what are we gonna do? Yeah, I don't know. But I believe in multiplying. I believe in helping people be who they are, where they are. And so we're gonna take clusters of communities and launch them out and say, hey, be where you are. And we're going to help them do that. We had trust. Oh, I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm just saying, would you consider flipping the question and say, why would you not do it if God wants you to do it? Um, here's the second thing. When, when you're faced with a, a decision, decision A or B, would you consider using a pros and cons approach, but with you not in the center of that? Would you consider actually putting this out and saying, you know what, I'm going to put character in front of my comfort and list out the pros and cons? Would you consider actually taking this and saying, you know what, I'm going to put personal godliness in front of my retirement? Would you consider saying, you know what, rather than seeing my benefits as the priority, I'm going to put 
the benefit of other people as the priority, and then I'm going to list out the pros and cons of the decisions. Would you consider flipping that? Maybe, maybe lastly, I would just say this. Would you consider not waiting to trust God? <laughs> Don't wait for a whale. Probably won't come. Would you consider that? In our culture, we have to spend a lot of time with one another to trust each other. But let me just say this to you. God doesn't need to earn your trust. He doesn't need to. He's your creator. And when Jesus says, follow me, he's, he's requiring trust. He says, when you, when you follow me, if you want to follow me, he says, you must first deny yourself. You've got to take yourself out of the center. You're, you're a self-giving, loving person, and don't, don't corrupt that. Focus it. Let me help you. And those that actually decided to do that first, they then experienced the life Jesus invited them into. Those that chose not to missed out. The danger about our culture is this, is that we can come to church all the time and say we're a follower of Jesus, but never actually take ourselves out of the center. And here's the problem with that. If that tends to be your issue, and, and it's probably, it's mine too, not probably, it is, all of ours. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every day and go, man, I'm so excited to be selfless today. It's just my natural bent. But here's what can happen. If it's not a practice of taking ourselves out of the center of the equation or flipping the questions or flipping the benefactors of decisions, here's what ends up happening. You will be like a dog that goes to the toilet to drink water and walks away and goes, man, there's nothing better than that. That's what you'll be like. Jesus says, I'm inviting you into a life of true joy. You just got to take yourself out of the center to experience it. And I, I think that's the life that you want. And so what I, lastly, what I would just say is this, is that would you take these things and maybe consider understanding that God's blessing in your life does not mean the absence of pain. God's blessing in your life does not mean the presence of comfort and a sense of security or control. God's blessing in your life is that he's actually with you in all of it. He's with you in all of it. That's the blessing. And so consider learning from Jonah. Don't, don't allow your fears and your biases, and Jonah has them. You'll see it next week. Your insecurities to rob you from experiencing God's work in your life. Don't, and don't underestimate his work it, through you either in the transformation of other people. Don't allow your fears to do that. Jesus has invited you into something amazing. And I pray that you will understand that. It is seen in selflessness. And that's where um, they, they asked me to lead us into communion. And communion is this amazing picture of the self-giving love of God, is it not? That's what it is. You're coming in, it's just the bread and the cup, and it represents the body of Christ and the blood shed for the forgiveness of all the ways in which we corrupt God's love. It's called sin. And it, I, I find it personally fascinating that, like, Jesus doesn't break this bread and say, hey, I want you to eat grapes and eat wheat. He says wine and bread, which is fascinating. Because think about how much work it takes to create wine of human hands. Think about that. You pick a grape and think about all the processing 
that that grape has to go through to get to wine. And then think about the bread. Like, it's not just wheat. Maybe you're gluten-free and sorry. Um, But think about all the processing of human hands. This is God's way of saying, look, I'm integrated in everything you're doing. And you're going to work to create some wine and some bread. And you're going to take that and it's going to point to me. And so I just want to pray for the communion. And I want to invite you into understanding God's grace for you through the selflessness of Christ. Let me me pray. Father, we are grateful for you. We sit here in this room together. It's a small room, relatively, and, and yet we are coming from different backgrounds, different issues. You're in different processes with us, and yet we are one people. We were your people, and we come to you right now to say thank you. We remember your selfless love towards us. We specifically remember you, Jesus, in this time. Your selflessness of giving yourself, your body and your blood for us, our benefit. We were your priority in that. And we look to you as we take this, we remember your love for us. But we also, Holy Spirit, help us. We also remember our commitment to following your example. So, Father, we do this. We sing these songs and we remember through communion our union with you through Christ. And it's because of that we pray that you are honored.